Romans chapter 9, verse 1. I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption of sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises who are the fathers and from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is over all God blessed forever. Amen. And Father, we do ask you to help us now as we enter into this section of scripture. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, we've been working through Romans. Romans is known as as a Christian constitution. Great depth, great doctrine, great truths are here. Everybody agrees with that. When you enter into chapter 9 through chapter 11, the, the Christian community, Christian scholars wrestle with these three chapters there's great um, discussion argumentation different opinions over what this means uh, i come to this text with a certain understanding from where the the school of theology that i was raised in. i i do believe what i was taught i i think that the scripture um uh, says what i hold to However, I need to guard myself from that because I don't want to go into these chapters over the next few weeks thinking that I already know what it says. I want the word to speak for itself and to let it speak. It's not always as clear as commentators make it seem. Sometimes they'll take a whole chapter and they'll just give it a phrase that this one little phrase is all that this chapter is saying, which is far more complex than the word of God allows us. We can't have that freedom. There's tension often in the word. There's difficulties in these three chapters. There's great difficulties. There's rough edges. And I'm not one who likes to smooth out rough edges. I'm, I'm okay with there being tension in the text because we're not God. God is God. And we have finite brains. We do not have infinite wisdom. And so if there's tension in the text, the, the tension isn't with the text. It's with our understanding of the text. And so entering into this, uh, many schools of thoughts, my school of thought has always been, although I, now that I'm teaching through it, I don't think it's as simple, have identified Romans chapter 9 through 11 as sort of a, a parenthetical thought in Paul's teaching, meaning that he was going along, he gets to Romans chapter 8, verse, verses 38 through 39, these great verses, the, the crescendo, the climax of the first eight chapters with, for I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Beautiful ending. The parenthetical statement says what Paul is saying is sort of it doesn't follow his flow of thought. We set it to the side. It's important. But if we were going to follow his flow of thought, we immediately head over to Romans chapter 12. And he continues there. And he says, therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, 
to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual or I think more appropriately is your reasonable service of worship. It makes sense. I, 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 I really don't have that much problem with saying that because of all this great doctrinal truth. Everything we've learned in the first eight chapters of Romans lead to the reality that if those are true, then we need to offer ourselves to God because he's done so much for like it's reasonable of us in our worship of him to give him our lives. It's logical. It makes sense. However, to treat chapters 9, 10, and 11 like they don't fit or they're sort of different, I have sort of a concern on that side. Romans is the longest letter written that we have from antiquity. I mean, not just in the Bible, it's Paul's longest letter, but in letters that were written, this is a long letter. And then to say, and Paul does write with parenthetical statements. He, we saw it in the first seven verses, but I'll get to that. To say that a fifth of the book is a parenthetical statement, it isn't necessarily a, it's kind of outside of what he's trying to accomplish. To, to me that I have concerns as, as an interpreter of scripture, how, how do I, that's a lot of, this isn't just like a paragraph. That he says, oh yeah, he was going, then he has ADHD and he's basically says, hey, let's talk about this. I do this, so I think Paul does it. But Paul is, not, is way more linear than I am in his thoughts. And so how does this fit? How, 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 does, how do these three chapters fit? And in answering that question, I'm thankful that I had three weeks off. I'm so thankful that Ben gave me vacation, but it also gave me time to sort of study and the background and just to step back from Romans and look at the big picture. Uh, how does the cohesiveness of this book fit? Romans is very different. And when I went to my first sermon that I preached on Romans, I went to my notes and one of the things with any book I preach, I look at the, the contextual history. What was going on? What, what was happening in the original setting? What did Paul face? What did he see in Rome? What was going on? What were some of the things that he was trying to address? Now, if you'll turn um, to the next slide, the map, we're reminded, I, I left my pointer at home, but you, is there, you guys know where modern day Greece is? Well, you see a, a Cheia, I probably said that wrong. Um, you see the bold print there. Right above that is the town of Corinth. In that town of Corinth is where Paul was as he was writing Romans. We know that Paul, the, the, the story of the gospel begins in Jerusalem. The headquarters in the first few chapters of Acts, the church is headquartered in Jerusalem as it went out to the Gentiles. The, the church sort of changed its headquarters up to Antioch, which is above Syria. That was sort of Paul's base of operation, the early church's base of operation as they were getting the gospel out to the world was in Antioch. Paul found himself in Corinth um, for a while. And while he was there, he wrote Romans. We know that Paul had never been to Rome. He wants to get to Rome, but he'd heard a lot about Rome. Uh, Rome was the headquarters of the world. The saying was that, that all roads lead to Rome. And Paul, this great evangelist, if all roads lead to Rome, that means if you're in Rome getting the gospel out, Rome leads to the whole world. And so he 
Many think that he wanted to get to Rome to get a, a headquarters of the church there so that the gospel could go out, that it would be a, a, a sort of a base station for the church at the outermost part of the world as they wanted to go out. Ultimately, Paul wanted to get to Spain. And so he writes this letter. Now, during the time of writing, what was going on during this time? We, we know that Paul didn't start the church. In Romans 1, you can turn to Romans 1 because we're going to end up there anyhow. And in Romans... 113, Paul essentially begins by saying, you know, I'd, I'd long to see you. Uh, I've tried it many times before, but it's, it, it, God has never opened the door for me to get to Rome. We know that Paul didn't start the church there. We know Peter didn't start the church there. Most scholars, most historians believe that the church that existed in Rome came to be because in Acts chapter 2, as Pentecost happened, the Spirit came, the churches formed. There were a number of Jewish uh, followers who happened to be in Jerusalem during that time. They came to know Christ as their Savior. After Pentecost, they returned home to Rome. So there's Jewish believers in Rome, not under any specific apostolic leader. And they, they basically were figuring things out on their own. They were doing very well. Um, but as they were there, they began to flourish. Jews and Gentiles were a part of the church. They began to expand. However, the emperor at the time, Claudius, he started disliking what was going on because Rome wanted peace within their uh, location. And so did the thing crash on us up there? It's black. Um, Oh, maybe it's just me. Never mind. We got a new toy. Now it's a black screen, but okay, distracted. I was saying Paul was lin- more linear than me, right? So it's like, hey, what's that? What uh, okay. Church is flourishing. Now, Claudius, they, they wanted peace. You could have freedom of religion so much as that there were no conflicts. Now, what was going on is suddenly these Jewish believers in Christ were sharing their faith with their Jewish non-believing family, friends, and conflict was arising. And Claudius eventually said, you know what? All of the Jews are kicked out of Rome. There's no more of this. I don't want any riots in my town. You're all out. So all of the Jews had to leave Rome. While they were gone, the, Jew, or the Gentile believers stayed. And the Gentile church grew and grew and grew. Where they were more predominant than the, the Gentile believers before were sort of grafted into the Jews. They were sort of under the Jewish believers. The Jewish believers had all the promises, all of the truths. But now that they're gone, they began to think, you know what? God's done with Israel. God has replaced Israel with the church. And so they began to flourish. Now, Claudius was eventually poisoned and killed and Nero came into authority. Nero, as he came into authority, allowed the Jews to come back. So the believing Jews who came back and associated themselves with the church were now in the minority. And there was great tension within this body of Christ between Jews and Gentiles. The Gentiles now thought that they had all of the power, that that God was done with Israel. And the Jews are like, well, what what about us? How does this all fit? I said this in the very beginning that I believe that this is one of the things that Paul is addressing. And then as I've been studying for Romans chapter 9 through 11, an observation came up in Paul's writings. Paul always deals with doctrine first 
And then from doctrine, doctrine begins is the foundation for the praxis, the, 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 how you live out the things that you believe. The, the things that you do are a result of what you believe. And so you read through Ephesians, Colossians, Corinthians, all of these letters. There's, there's, there's doctrine and then he transitions. And say, because of this, the so what is, live your lives like this. And all of the so what sections, as I call them, he deals with marriage. He deals husbands and wives, employers and employees, they are slaves and slave owners. Um, deals with children to parents. All of these, uh, how do you live out your faith in these most intimate settings of your life, your day-to-day things? Now, Romans is totally different. Romans... We turn this point into the the practical application of the doctrine in chapter 12. But as we go through chapters 12 through 16, these standard truths aren't there. He doesn't deal with marriage. He doesn't deal with being a slave in a workplace environment. He deals with stuff like, what do we do about meat that's been sacrificed to idols? So you can get tri-tip that's been sacrificed for idols for pennies on the dollar. Now, the Jewish believer said, there's no way I'm eating that meat. I'm paying full price. And the Gentiles like, are you crazy? Now, all of us in this room are like, you're crazy. <laughs> Buy the meat that's been sacrificed to an idol. There's no such thing as idols. It's okay. It's cheap meat. What about holy days, festivals, feasts, things like this that the Jews really cared about? The Gentiles didn't care about that stuff. All of these things are addressed. How, how, how do you deal with? With people in the church who have a different stance of conscience. And he's going to explain that, that the person with the broader conscience is supposed to, to humble himself and be sensitive to the person with the more narrow conscience, which we'll see. There's, a, there's great tension, and we're going to work through it. But before we work through it, I want to sort of review how do we get here. So in Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7... I'm going to fly over this. The goal today is, is to get the sort of the, the vantage point from 30,000 feet, looking at the whole, the whole landscape of Romans and specifically Romans 9 through 11. Then next week, we're going to circle back in and we'll go verse by verse, thought through thought, thought for thought. But we, in order to do this right, we need to be able to see the whole so that we don't get lost in the, in the, the minutiae. And so Paul starts this letter. The first seven verses essentially say, I, Paul, am writing this letter to all who are beloved of God, Christian believers who are in Rome. Then verses 8 through 15, he sort of introduces himself. You've you've heard of me, the Apostle Paul. I've never met you. You've never met me. I've heard all about you guys, and your faith is going around through the whole world. I'm so encouraged by it. I long to get to Rome so that I could preach the gospel there. Notice that he's speaking to believers. That always catches me. We think of the gospel as, as sort of the, the PowerPoint, how to become a Christian. But the gospel to Paul was, how do you live out the truth of the gospel in your whole life? So he wanted to share the truths of the gospel. He wanted to encourage them. He, he knew that as he encouraged them, that they would mutually encourage him. He begins to lay the framework, sort of, he says, I want to obtain some fruit for you, which he's going to unpack later, but he he sort of graces the skids. Hey, guys, when I get there, it's going to take all my money to get there, and I'm going to show up broke. But I'm not done because I want to go to Spain, 
And so I'm hoping that you could save some of your fruit, your dinero, to, to help fund my trip to go to Spain so that I can get where the gospel hasn't been yet. But it's going to take a team, different parts of the body. And so he begins to lay out what he wants to do. Then we come to verses 16 through 17, these wonderful verses where Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness of God is a major theme that flows all through the book of Romans. The gospel and um, God's righteousness are like beams of light that throw, uh, flow and penetrate all the way through the book. Paul didn't understand the righteousness of God until he met Christ on the road to Damascus and it transformed him. And as he began sharing about the righteousness of God from chapter one, verse 18 through Romans chapter three, 23, he ultimately makes his point that God is so righteous that in comparison to God, all have fallen short of the glory of God. We have good sinners. We have bad sinners. We have religious sinners. We have non-religious sinners. We have married sinners. We have non-married sinners. We have all kind of sinners. At the base of the cross, the land is leveled out. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That is Paul's point of the first three chapters, that God is so righteous. That any righteousness you have is but a filthy rag. There is nothing that you bring to the cross. Nothing. Then we get to verses or chapter three, verse 24 through chapter four. And Paul begins to explain this relationship with God, that it's by faith through his grace alone. And that's nothing new. He goes back to Abraham and he shows that how God deals with people, that it's this relationship, this connection we have with God has always been by faith. This is a point that I think that Christians today sort of miss. It, um, and I think it's a point that Paul is addressing in Romans chapter 9 through 11. See, what happens in the church today, last service, I had to, I had to fish to it, so I have a bookmark here. This is how we see the Bible. Most Christians hold up their Bible with this is the, the thicker part. That's the Old Testament in my hand. Most Christians today basically take this part and say that was the old news. In our minds, we don't do it literally. We take the Bible, and I'm not going to do it because I paid to get this rebound and then rebound again. <laughs> Can I borrow somebody's Bible, please? <laughs> <I'm just joking. laughs> then we'll show how weak I am right now. <laughs> and they mentally tear it in half, and then they only hold to this stuff. And there are some extremists in the Christian circle who say, of this part, we only read the red letters because that's what Jesus said. The news for all of us is the Bible didn't come with red and black letters. The reality is, is you can take the whole Bible and print every letter red because Jesus spoke every one of these words. All of this is from him. There's no disconnect between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Amen. Thank you. I got one. <laughs> I got two. All right. And so Paul is showing in the first part, he goes back to Abraham chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, and he says, you know what? Abraham, our great-grandfather of the faith, 
to the Jewish person, showing that, you know, Abraham believed by faith. His righteousness was credited to him. It wasn't his works. It was his faith that he trusted God. Then in chapter 5, we see the, the sort of the explanation of justification. What, is, what does justification look like? And in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we learn that justification doesn't mean that you're not a sinner. It means that you are a sinner who was declared righteous based on the work of Christ through faith. He says, now that you've been justified by faith, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And he goes to explain what the justified life looks like. Now, every believer, every person, when they come to the cross and they find Jesus as their savior, the fear, the concern that every pastor, every mature believer has is that the person that once they profess Christ, once they, they, they acknowledge him, they, they are saved, the spirit indwells them. The fear is that they slip back into their old ways. And Romans chapter six and seven, I don't know if it's going gonna, it's gonna to stick with me. Maybe I'll slip back to my old thoughts. But more and more I study through Romans, more and more I see that Romans chapter six and seven, Paul is addressing those that he's writing, the fear that they slip back to their old life. Now, in the church in Rome, you have two groups. You have Gentiles and you have the, the Jewish believers. Each of these people to slip away from Christ, they're slipping back into their old nature will look very different. And so I'm starting to see that Romans chapter 6 is sort of the, the, the Gentiles slipping back into their old life of hedonism and just living for the flesh. The old, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Yeah, that sounds good to me and my flesh. Then we get to Romans 7, the first part, where he, he starts dealing, or do you not know, brethren, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, Romans 7, 1, that the law has jurisdiction over the person as far as he lives. Now, the Jewish believer in Christ, to slip back to their old nature, would slip back into religion, to slip back under the law, to slip back into their own works. And Paul's trying to, to guard these two groups. And he goes and he shares his personal struggle, that this, this war within. See, before you're a Christian, you just have your old nature. There's no war. You're happy walking in the flesh. You come to Christ. You believe in him. The spirit indwells you. Now you have two roommates within you that hate each other. <laughs> and you're caught in the tug of war. Well, the reality is you're not caught in the tug of war. because the re- well, then maybe I can only speak for myself. The reality is there's a, there's a war going on within. You really want the flesh to win. I mean, that's, that's, I'm bent towards the flesh. I'm not really bent towards the spirit. The, the spirit doesn't come naturally to me. That's God being very gracious and patient and allowing me to humble myself and to walk with him. But we see Romans chapter 6 and 7, sort of the fear. But then our hope, we come to this great chapter in Romans chapter 8, where Paul lays out, For us who have believed in Christ and the struggle that we face, chapter 8 is so much of the secret of the Christian life. He starts out with verse 1, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are Christ Jesus. I don't care if you're a sinner that's a good sinner or a sinner that's a bad sinner. After Christ, we all struggle with guilt, or maybe it's just me. I, I just contradicted myself, but that's okay. <laughs> I do. I, see, I struggle with the things that I've done. That, oh, man, God can never forgive me. I can't be forgiven for that stuff. I did this, 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 this. No way. 
Satan accusing me. And then on the religious side, like the Jew, like think, well, I have all this. I have my religion. I have God's promises. I have all this. Well, that, that condemns you too because you're not saved by that. But in Christ, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is like a huge wet blanket, a huge weight on our backs that God has lifted. There's freedom in Christ. There's hope. You don't have to beat yourself up anymore. You don't have to walk away around in shame. He, he then goes in verse 15 and says, For you've not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. But you have received a spirit of adoption as sons. Male and female believer were all sons. Because it has everything to do with inheritance. The son got the inheritance and we in Christ are all sons. Meaning that we have full access and privilege into the inheritance of which God promised. He continues and he says, by which we cry out, Abba, Daddy, Father. That we have this intimate relationship with him. We drop down in Romans chapter 8, verse 26, this great passage. It says, in the same way, the spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should. But the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. I love this. We see Kelly Nichols get malaria. Anytime I start praying for healing, I realize I have a major conflict in my heart. That guy from the Sudan really messed me up. The guy that preached the message from Sudan really messed me up on my understanding. So when I pray and I see somebody sick, what do we pray for? We pray for healing. We want to be happy, wealthy, and wise and free of sickness. And God is able to, God, God works miracles. He, hears, he heals people all, all the time. In my flesh, that's, that's what I want all the time. If I was God, you can all give an amen already that I'm not. <laughs> you all would make at least a million dollars tax-free a year. None of you would get sick. You would never have any sorrow. And do you know what kind of kids I'd have? A bunch of spoiled brats. <laughs> See, but God and his sovereignty, which we're going to look at in 9, 10, and 11, he understands that. See, his aim isn't making us happy. His aim is, is making us like Christ. And sometimes suffering and, and, and sickness and pain and sorrow, those, if I'm honest with myself, those are the times that I grow most. That my closeness, my relationship, my Christ-likeness increase during those times. So I pray I want healing, but at the same time, I have this nagging, smiling man from Sudan who preached that message in my mind saying, how do you know God's not using that malaria for his glory in their lives? How do you know that he's not allowing this to happen so that they could grow closer to him? How do you know that he's not using this in their life 
to allow the people that they're ministering to to see that they've stepped out of their beautiful countries of Australia and the United States to come into their own and they're living just like that. How do you know that? It's like, oh, Lord. Well, I want healing. Yes, please. I do want that. But if it's not your will, I also, please, Lord, help them to endure in this. And I, there's conflict in my brain. That's okay. Because the Bible tells us to pray, to ask for healing. It tells us this. But then we also see Paul who... Who healed all kinds of people. He had his thorn, his sickness. I don't even know what it, nobody knows what it was. Paul, the man who God used to heal all kinds of people. Do you know how successful he was in healing himself? He was zero, struck out. And he said that God didn't heal him because he needed to keep him humble. So where I'm at, I know you guys think, oh, you're distracted. I'm on point. I see verse 26 and 27, Romans chapter 8, and I can, God wants me to pray. We're told to pray always, without ceasing, all the time. We fear, oh, see if you're raised in certain denominations or, or backgrounds, like I, that, that, that prayer is like, a, is like a, a Rubik's cube, and you've got to do it just right, and only if you do it just right, then your prayers are answered. So much so that there's just no sense in you praying to God. Why don't you pray to saints? And let saints who are already in heaven be your intercessor. No, the Bible tells us you pray. There's one mediator between God and man. That's Jesus Christ. And then we're assured that as we pray, you're going to mess up your prayer. Lord, I want healing. I, Lord, just please heal him. Lord, help me to get a lot of money. And Lord, help this. And, and it's just let it out. Just tell God. Ask him. There's a governor in your prayers saying that the spirit is there saying, Lord, 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 Lord. Let me translate this. <laughs> they need sickness. They need the message from the doctor that it's bad. They, Lord, let them lose their job. Lord, take it away. Because they need this to be closer to you. Or, hey, Lord, give it to them. They're going to handle, like, whatever it is that that we have this great intercessor working on our behalf. In our it's beautiful. We don't have a capricious God that's just waiting for you to make a mistake so he can go, wham, you blew it. No, he says, seek me, pray to me, talk to me. Don't worry. I love you. I'm going to help you in your prayers. It's beautiful. And then we get down to verses 38 through 39. And he says, for I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Hallelujah. We love it. It's a great verse for all of us who are Gentiles, which is almost everybody in this room. But Paul was a. Of the Jews, he was exceeding beyond all of his other countrymen. He's of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Pharisee. I think he writes this in questions in the church, this idea of replacement theology that the church has replaced Israel. I think there's a certain mourning in his heart and a need to, to correct this. And you, you Gentiles, which is me, we think, what's the big deal about the Old Testament? We got this. We got the good stuff. This is what matters. The problem with that thinking, though, is if this stuff wasn't true, 
For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other great will be able to separate us. Well, if Israel, which had all these great promises, has been separated, there's a, there's a problem. Because God's character is now in question. And so Paul needs to address a few things. And these chapters 9, 10, and 11 are not to Jews. They're to Gentiles because we need to understand that. And Jews need to understand this as well. But Paul is writing to this Gentile church. And as he writes this, chapter 12 makes sense. But these are important. Because ultimately where he's going, look at verse 6 of chapter 9. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. Because the big issue is if God has replaced Israel, all of these promises have failed. And so then there's a problem. In my background, which I'm okay with, my understanding of 9, 10, and 11, I've always understood, and I still do, I'm not opposed to it, is that chapter 9 is understood as Israel's past. Chapter 10 is known as Israel's present condition before God. And chapter 11 is dealing with Israel's future. However, the more I study this, the the more I'm coming to realize that I believe that these three chapters have more to do with God than Israel, although they're totally about Israel. And so I would say that chapter 9 is dealing with God's sovereignty Chapter 10 is dealing with God's justice. Chapter 11 is dealing with God's faithfulness. That's just my humble opinion. And we're going to work through this slowly. But I want to I, I want to try to do something here. When we were in Lake Tahoe, one of the things I was doing was trying to teach the kids how to skip rocks. Didn't realize how dangerous that could be. I didn't realize that my safety shooting as a Navy SEAL would haunt me throwing rocks because now I suddenly see this as a firing line and the rocks are zipping every which way. And so I'm trying to run it like a gun range and I had to just uh, for safety reasons pull the plug. But when you when you skip a rock, the rock kind of skips along the top of the water. It doesn't go down to the depth. And so today my goal is is to skip along the top of these three chapters so that we could see the bigger picture. Because I think it will help us as we go deep. Now Paul begins verse 1 and 2 of verse chapter 9. I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies me with me in the Holy Spirit. And it's like the, when the pastor started saying, okay, I'm telling you the truth. <laughs> All that other stuff. No. He's, he's bringing God as his witness to testify about something that is really important. And as we enter into verse 2, it starts with that. It's a, it's, a, it's a clause that explains what is the purpose. It's a, uh, the, the purpose clause. And he says the reason he's bringing God as his witness to testify, he says, I have great sorrow and unceasing grief. This word grief, I believe it's used only three times in the New Testament. And it's a deep, deep, deep agony within the heart. An anguish that's undescribable. Almost like a parent losing a child sort of anguish. 
something that's so unbearable for Paul that he has this deep grief and anguish in his heart. And he says in verse 3, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh who are Israelites. His heart is broken because his people, and he was one of them, has missed the Messiah. All of the promises that were given to them, they missed. He says he's so troubled by this that if he could, he would be willing to trade his salvation if it meant that they would get saved. I tell you that these first three verses bring such conviction to my heart. How many of us feel this way about our family members that aren't believers? Halfway want to sit up here and lie to you guys and say, oh, yeah, I feel this way about my family. Like I, my family is a bunch of liberals for the most part. And they say, well, we, we, can't, we can't talk about politics or religion. And I'm like, guys, I was a Navy SEAL for 12 years and now I'm a pastor. <laughs> Is there... Uh, it, uh, The reality is I get annoyed with my family. Get annoyed with people who I know who don't know Christ. If I'm honest. And, and I read this and I'm convicted of Paul's words and heart here are that of Christ. He says, when I see my countrymen who, who ultimately would kill him, who've killed, they killed all of the apostles, all, they killed Christ, all of this stuff. And his heart is broken. What did Jesus say on the cross? And he didn't say it once. We have it recorded once. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. It's in the present act. It's, it's repeating. He said it multiple times in the Bible. We have it recorded once. But it was something that he would, Father, forgive them for what they, for, for they don't know what they're doing. Paul says, I, I give up my salvation if it meant that they could be saved. And I'm convicted to pray for my family, to pray for my friends, to to, to, to pray for our community at, at a new depth and a new sorrow, not, not to combat them over politics, and, but, but to, to love them because Christ loved them. Christ gave his life for them. He says, who are Israelites? Listen to this list of things. The first thing he says, to whom belongs the adoption as sons? That sound familiar? If you're paying attention, that's from Romans chapter 8, 15. Remember what Paul wrote there. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons. We received it. We have it. When he looks at his, his fellow Israelites, he says, it belongs to them. And they've lost it. It belongs to them. And, and the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service. I, I see that phrase and I think of Paul as a, lo, a little boy. Longing to be able, maybe I'll be the high priest one day. Maybe I'll be able to go into, I'll draw the straw that one time to go into the holiest of holies. How privileged are we as the Jewish people to be able to serve in this capacity? God gave it to them. The temple service, the promises. And then don't let verse 5 slip past you. Whose are the fathers? So we're talking about the Jewish people and all of their fathers. And from whom is the Christ according to the flesh? 
I see movies and pictures about Jesus and I see a, a, a white sheet around him with blonde hair flowing in the wind and blue eyes like he's Swedish. <laughs> Jesus is a Jew. He's Jewish. From the people of Israel, through their DNA came the Messiah. And Paul says, we have adoption as belong the adoption of sons, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, the promises. The Messiah came through our lineage. You don't have God without Israel. Israel's God is our God. We've been grafted in. According to the flesh who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. That's powerful. And he immediately goes in verse 6. But it is not as the word of God has failed. And he's going to begin explaining the sovereignty of God. How God selected certain individuals throughout Israel's history. That it was God's sovereignty, not anything that Israel had done. He ends by telling a story, an illustration. I believe it's in chapter 9. I've been through this so many times. I'm like backwards. Uh, but he, uh, I believe it's the potter. Somebody shout out if it's not the potter. We're going to go with the, yeah, there it is. Verse 21. It talks about God's sovereignty and illustrating God's sovereignty. He describes a potter who takes the clay and with the clay, he, he can make a beautiful vase, something that's fine. I don't even know what you use for it. But you put it somewhere, and it's in the house where, if you're like me, all you want to do is not throw a ball at it, or you don't want to bump into it because it means you're going to get in trouble. Then there's other clay that gets molded into your cereal bowl that gets used every day for, for regular sort of uses. The clay doesn't determine what it becomes. It's the potter that determines what that clay becomes. And he points to the sovereignty of God. And it's funny to me that chapters 9 and 10 create great division. As you read through chapter 9, our brothers, and maybe you're some here, I have my brothers in Christ and sisters in Christ who are Calvinists. When I was finished seminary, I made a covenant with myself that I would never become anything or support anything wholeheartedly that ended with an ism. Calvinism, Arminianism, whatever it is. I'm not going to stand behind a man-made institution because there's more tension. God is greater than these, these structures that we put in place. But our, our Calvinists love chapter 9. Love it. And there's great truth there because God is sovereign. He's over all, in control of all. He does what he does because he's God. And then our brothers who are Calvinists stop reading were our brothers who are the Arminian, Arminian, whatever that, you know, whatever you would make them, the ism with Arminian, Arminianisms, the Arminianist, where they start reading our brothers the Calvinists stop quoting from. Because in chapter 10, God's justice, how can God, because he's God, what about, that's not fair. No, God's God. We don't want fair with God. God is just. He's holy. And see, now chapter 10 begins with brethren. My heart's desire, my prayer to God for them, that's the Jews, the unbelieving Jews, is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. 
for not knowing about God's righteousness and seek and seeking to establish their own. They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. He begins showing how our just God deals with stubbornness and people who reject him. I don't know if you've ever read, read the Old Testament, but I want to summarize it for you. It goes like this. There was Israel. God blessed them. They walked with God, then they rebelled against God, then God disciplined them, and then they repented and they turned back with God. Rinse and recycle. You know, it's like soap. Just do it over and over again. They basically followed that cycle. God blessed them. They walked with God. Then they strayed away from God. They started rebelling against him. Then God disciplined them, corrected them. Then they got their hearts right, and they basically do this over and over and over and over again. And so Paul says, I want them to be saved, but they're rebelling against God. As we get into verses 13 through 15, it's one of, I'm going to take a whole week just to focus on. What about the people in Africa who'd never even heard anything about Jesus? That's not fair. And Paul's going to make the compelling case that we who believe need to go and need to share the gospel because unless they hear, unless they believe, they won't be saved. But I'm getting ahead of myself. They say that they've rejected God's righteousness. They don't know true righteousness. They've they've created their own righteousness. They follow these man-made rules. This is what I love about going to Israel. If you go to Israel, the one place you're going to end up is the Western Wall. And at the Western Wall, the first time I went, it was during one of the, the, the feasts. And so it was packed. And you'll go down there and you can walk in the wall. And when I went, it was so packed from like the wall all the way back. But thankfully, because it was a feast, there was a bunch of Orthodox Jews who were from New York who had personality. So I kind of felt comfortable talking with them. So I've been people watching the whole time. That's like what you do there. You're like, oh, check that out. Check that out. That's amazing. Oh, that's really funny. I like that. That's cool. But, but, But you don't really engage with them. But then me, I'm in the back and I see these guys from New York. I can hear their accents. And I'm like, hey, guys. And they're like totally decked out, like Orthodox Jew, the hat the phylacteries, the box on their head. That might be phylacteries too, but they had all of their stuff. And I'm watching them at the wall, just saying stuff, doing this number, sticking their prayers in. I'm like, dude, what's going on? Like, I'm like, I'm fascinated by all of this. But can you explain, why do you do this? And he's like, see, when we pray, the way we show God that we really mean it is we do this because we're praying from our head to our toes Our whole everything is in it. And that way God knows. And he starts explaining all this stuff. And see, Paul, he's not critiquing them as an outsider. He was one of them. And Paul says they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God, but they've created their own. They've taken the Old Testament. They've distorted it. And they think that their righteousness is from within. And so Paul goes to explain that they need the gospel. They need to submit to Christ. For what does it say in verse 4? For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes that they need Jesus. He goes on. By the middle way through chapter 10, he gives a warning to the Gentiles. Don't think you're so special. See, we live in Valley Center. We know all about grafting. He says the olive tree was chopped off and we're new branch. Your new branch is grafted in. If he chopped the old tree and grafted new in don't you think you could be kind of chopped off the same so there's this sort of this this warning trying to bridge the gap between these two groups 
That's chapter 11. I got ahead of myself. So, so in chapter 11, before the chopping, he says, verse 1 of chapter 11, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? So he asks a question, like he's been doing all through Romans. What shall we say then? Shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? How does he, how does he answer? May it never be. God forbid it. Same thing here. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, the tribe of Benjamin. God has not replaced Israel with the church. He is not done with Israel. You need to be careful. Be cautious with those who tell you it comes subtly. Anne and I, when we went to a different church on vacation, she's like, hey, how was church? I'm like, oh, it was really nice. She's like, what do you think? And I'm like, nah, the guy's a replacement theologian. I kind of disagree with that. She's like, what? Where'd you get that? I'm like, well, he said that one phrase. And he said that, and she's like, oh yeah, I missed that. I'm like, yeah, but I'm like critical when I like sit and listen to people teach. He said he hasn't rejected them, that Israel, he's not done with it. He hasn't rejected his people. He foreknew. Where he goes, I love verses 11 through 14. I'm speeding up here. I know I'm towards the end. We're short on time. 11 through 14 are hilarious. I love Paul. The more I study his writings, the more I like see stuff. What does he say? He says, I say then, did they stumble as, um, they did not stumble as to fall, did they? You know, we looked at the Old Testament, that cycle that was going on. And Paul asked the question, did they stumble where they fell flat on their face where they couldn't pick up that God was done forgiving them? Was God pick, done picking them up? Did they, did they stumble and fall so that it was beyond repair? And he says, may it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am apostle to the Gentiles, I might magnify my ministry. I love this. Okay, I thought I was on the pipeline to be the, the, the leader of the Sanhedrin leading the Jews. But God's called me to reach the Gentiles. Genius. Because Paul's pedigree in judaism was second to none if there was one man that was to 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 branch these two groups together it would take a top tier pedigreed jewish man that could trump anybody's credentials that he knew the word of god more than they did and he had the authority by their standard to back up his words and then he says i might magnify my ministry if somehow i might Move to jealousy, my fellow countrymen, and save some of them. This is hilarious. See, when you go to Israel, especially the the Western Wall, or some call it the Wailing Wall, you get the three religions of the world on that place. The two groups, the first is the Jews, the Orthodox Jews. You see them wailing, doing their stuff at the wall. Fascinating, fun to watch. Then you go up to the Temple Mount, totally Islamic area. No Bibles are allowed, but we're sneaking them in on our phones. Going, <laughs> in secret, of course. And so then we're watching everything that's going on there. And all of their religion that they're doing up there. So you have the Jews and you have the, the Muslims. Then the third group is us, the Christians. We got to... What are you guys doing that for? That's kind of cool. This is fast. This is fascinating. This is where the temple was. And then you like, you walk up to the... You walk up to the wall the first time, and before you get there, if you're a boy, 
you've got to get yourself a little yarmulke. It's like a little white community yarmulke. You pop it on your head. It looks goofy in the pictures. And you're like, look at them. They're all doing their thing. Am I allowed to? Am I allowed to? It's okay? Okay. Hey, get the picture of me. It looks like I'm praying. <laughs> and they were like doing this number. You're being respectful, but it's like, it's just this thing. Then we go up to the Temple Mount and we're walking around and, and all the Muslims are doing their thing, but we're just kind of checking them out, trying to figure out what they think. Just like, hey, get a picture next to the thing. And it's like, and I see Paul saying, if the Gentiles have this relationship with God, those people, my brethren, who have taken their special place and turned into religion and don't have a relationship with God, they're going to see it. They're going to notice it. And if they notice it, they're going to be jealous of it. And we see this through Acts. What did they say? They're just untrained fishermen, yet they've been with Jesus. They don't have our credentials. Something's different about them. So we'll just shut them up. And Paul says, if our relationship with Christ, that we have peace with God, and that moves the Jews to jealousy, Paul's like, right on. Because that actually, there's more to my account. And then he goes through all this, and there's tension. I'm okay with that. And in verse 33, where we'll wrap up, the very end here, he says, I'm just going to read it, and I'll say a few things. Paul ends chapter 11 with these words. He says, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor or who is first given to him that it might be paid back to him again. For from him and through him and to him are all things to him. Be the glory forever. Amen. You might recognize these verses. They sound a little bit like at the end of Job. He's quoting from Job. Job, this God-loving guy who was righteous before the Lord. To show how much he loved God, God allowed bad things to happen to. To prove a point to Satan. So his family's wiped out. His business is wiped out. Everything he has is wiped out. Satan says, oh, he still has good skin. That's why he's happy. Let me take that. Okay, take that. Just spare his life. So then he's got wounds on his flesh where he's taking clay and just tearing into his flesh, trying to get the itch to go away. And everybody rips on his friends. But his friends, those, those were good friends. They, they stayed with him at the end of town. They were in their best trying to explain the situation from their understanding. Certainly, Job, you've got to have sin in your life. Something's unrepentant. He's like, no, man, there's nothing. Then we get through the end of the story and Job has his questions. Then God responds and ends the book of Job. And he says, Job, I have a question for you. When I put the stars in the sky, where were you? When I laid the foundations of the earth, where were you? Job looks back at God and he, well, I don't know where you scratch, where, you know, hmm. I think I was trying to do a hmm and a scratch. Can you tell me where I was? I, I don't know. And that's basically God's point. Kid, I'm God. You're not. I'm sovereign. You're not. I'm in control. You need to trust me. His word at the end of Romans chapter 8 tells us that the love of God is so great for us that in Christ there's nothing at all that can separate us from him.
you're in Christ. He wants you. He's working on you. He's moving in your life that you would come to Christ as your Savior. And for those of us who have come to Christ as Savior, he's not done with us. He is conforming us into his likeness, making us like Christ. And he does that through a a number of things. Your car breaking down, struggles at your work, struggles in your heart, struggles all around, whatever. And as we go through trials, as we go through struggles, as we just the pain of life. We need the sovereignty of God in it. And I learned how not to use the this, this, this sovereignty of God in seminary as we lost our first child through a miscarriage. I've been studying all about the sovereignty of God. That's just what my wife needed to hear was me to give her a little sermonette on the sovereignty of God and how God's big plan. That is not at all what she needed to hear. She needed to find that on her own. She just needed me to hug her. But it was a big, my first pastoral collapse. Is when the world is falling apart, you don't go preaching the sovereignty of God at people. But it's a great doctrine to hold on to. And right now I have two people that are going through losing their spouse. One is my aunt, my wife's aunt. Her husband is dying of brain cancer rapidly. She is not a believer. In fact, she's been hostile to the gospel for as long as I've known her. A few weeks ago, she, uh, the, the word I heard is she basically said, I wish I had the Christian faith because then I would know how to handle this. Fascinating. Then I have another guy who I knew from the church that helped me come here to restart this one. Very successful businessman. Very, like, very successful. Guy who said once that he wanted to be able to tithe a million dollars. And then God answered that prayer, sort of guy. Well, his wife is dying of cancer, and he loves the Lord, and she loves the Lord. And I'm watching him go through this journey of his wife dying. It's totally different. They're clinging. They understand the sovereignty of God. They understand that. And it's... There's a difference. And so whatever you're going through, the truth that we know is, oh, the depth, the riches, both of wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor or who has first given to him that it might be paid back? No one. We bring nothing. He's given everything to us. And Father, we do thank you. Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand these chapters, Lord. Lord, for an understanding of these chapters, we'll understand who you are. Lord, I thank you that you are sovereign and that you are over all things. Lord, we thank you that in our greatest trial and struggles, Lord, they are, they are not too big for you. And so, Lord, we, in the quietness of our heart, Lord, we, we lay these things before you our marriage, our families, our jobs, our life, our health, our sickness, our infirmities, our finances. Father, we pray that you would help us to navigate our life in a manner that brings honor and glory to you. And this only happens when we are firmly rooted in our relationship with you and we understand that you're working. So, Lord, we pray. 
Deepen our walk with you. Deepen our understanding of who you are. We love you, Father. We trust you. And we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen.